I had a great time this week crowdsourcing part of my sermon. I asked people to share things they had been told when they were younger that later turned out to be false. So some of you here may actually hear some of your things um, that I mention. One person said that her mother told her Chuck E. Cheese was only open for birthday parties and you needed an invitation to be able to go. Another told her own children that the red phones in Target were a direct line to the North Pole and Santa could be notified instantly of their behavior. (laughs) Some teachings that people were told that they later found out to be false um, seemed to be more common and to come up um, more often. Like if you swallow your gum, it will get stuck in your stomach. If you go outside with wet hair, you will get sick. Or if you dig a really deep hole, you can reach China. Now, most of the things we're told when younger and later find out not to be true aren't really life-shattering. They might lead to mild neuroses, but they don't wind up being a source of devastation. They tend to be small and insignificant in the big scheme of things. Sometimes, though, we find that as we grow older, our whole framework for how we understand life is called into question. For example, these are also some responses I received. Somebody wrote, I was told that if I followed the rules and did what I was supposed to do, I would be rewarded. That peace came from submitting to others. That if I loved someone and prayed for them, that God would change their heart. That God would never let anything bad happen to me. When we find that our own experience doesn't bear such things out, It can turn our whole world upside down. It can leave us feeling utterly betrayed. And that's where we find Job in today's reading. You may remember that by the time we get to today's passage in the book of Job, Job has lost everything. Job, a righteous man, someone who according to scripture feared God and turned away from evil. Job who after his children had parties would get up early the next morning and offer burnt offerings to God just in case they had sinned. Job, who has up until now always been well rewarded for his loyalty. He has been wealthy in both family and possessions. But then one day a heavenly being questions the motive for Job's righteousness. He argues that it is perhaps precisely because Job has been so well rewarded for his faith that he remains faithful to God. So in the part of the story that's difficult for us to understand, God allows this heavenly investigator or adversary to test Job's faith by taking away all that he has. Job loses his animals, his servants, and his family. And then on top of all that, he's stricken with sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Of course, this goes against all that Job believes about God. It goes against everything he believes about the way the world works, about justice. Job assumes that justice means getting what we deserve. Rewards for faithfulness, good behavior, and wise choices, and punishment for wrongdoing, neglect, and idolatry. If God is just, Job says, God must hand out rewards and punishments in response to what we've done. We see this understanding of justice in the way Israel tells her own story. Every time Israel suffers defeat or tragedy, she blames it on her own unfaithfulness to God. The problem here is that Job has not been unfaithful. 
And this is where the rub comes in. Job's own experience doesn't make sense of all that he's been taught. He can't reconcile God as one who is just, as one who meets out reward and punishment based on our righteousness or sinfulness. He can't reconcile that with his own experience of losing every single thing he has. So Job sits on his heap of ashes, feeling absolutely betrayed. Betrayed by his wife, who taunts him and tells him to curse God. Betrayed by his friends, who insist that Job really must have done something to deserve all this tragedy. And most of all, betrayed by God, who has not lived up to the contract that says good leads to reward and sin leads to punishment. Job thinks that if he could just lay his argument out in full before God, God would have quit him of any crime. But Job can't even seem to find God. If I go forward, he is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left, he hides and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. Now, it's not the first time God's people have felt this sense of betrayal, this sense of abandonment. We see it in the words of the psalmist, the very same words Jesus would later recite as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I suspect most of us have had similar thoughts at some point in our lives. These feelings of betrayal are okay. In fact, they may even be a necessary part of our spiritual journey. See, Richard Rohr writes that for Christians, the map of Jesus' life is the map of every man and every woman. The map is divine conception, ordinary life, betrayal, abandonment, rejection, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. In the end, he writes, it all comes full circle, and we return where we started, but now transformed. This is the map of transformation. And as a wise person said to me in in similar words, if betrayal was a part of Jesus' path to resurrection, I doubt that we will be able to escape it on the way to our own resurrection. It will look different for us from what it did in Jesus' life, but it will feel largely the same. We, like Job and maybe even Jesus on the cross, may at times feel betrayed when our understanding of who God is and how God works seems totally incompatible with our own life experiences. We may feel as though the carpet has been pulled out from under us. Hopefully, we come through such moments with a fuller, richer understanding of who God is, an understanding that brings new life, a resurrection of sorts. But even if transient, such moments are painful nonetheless. If we're honest, we know that we have these moments in all of our closest relationships. Each person is more than our understanding of them. And so any conception we have of someone is bound at some point to rub up against the greater reality of who they are. And such inconsistencies can, rightfully or wrongfully, seem like betrayals. We come through them with our relationship changed, sometimes better, sometimes not. So here's the question. What do we, as Christians, gain by understanding betrayal as not just a part of Jesus' own life, but as an inevitable stage on our own path toward transformation as well? 
What do we as Christians gain by understanding betrayal to be not just a part of Jesus' life, but to be an inevitable stage on our own path toward transformation? In other words, is there any good news here? I think there is. Seeing moments of betrayal as an inevitable part of our spiritual journey can bring a sense of hope to those times when we find ourselves, like Job, sitting on a heap of ashes. If we know the overall pattern of Jesus' life, and if we believe it to be true of the life each one of us must live, then we can place ourselves within that story. Even when we feel absolutely betrayed, or when we are in the depths of despair, we can know that this painful moment is part of a greater story of life, death, and resurrection. We can know that to be the case whether we feel it or not. And this is the difference between true hope and cheery optimism. Hope is more about memory, more about remembering the story, than it is about feelings. Hope is more about memory than it is about feelings. That's why we can see such hope even in the midst of Job's despair. For Job never stops addressing God, never stops being in conversation with God. Wendell Berry writes that this itself is a sign of hope. He writes, The distinguishing characteristic of absolute despair is silence. There is a world of difference between the person who, believing that there is no use, says so to himself or to no one, and the person who says it aloud to someone else. A person who marks his trail into despair remembers hope, and thus has hope, even if only a little. A person who marks his trail into despair remembers hope. Maybe even our anger, our laments, and our arguments with God are in and of themselves a sign of hope. When we direct these toward God, they are at least not the absence of belief. The story of Job tells us that there may be times in our spiritual journey when we feel betrayed by God. Maybe it's even inevitable. We know that there are definitely times in our life when we find ourselves feeling betrayed by others, betrayed by the world around us, betrayed by ourselves, and maybe betrayed by our bodies. And despair is a natural response. Despair is part of life, and at times it can be part of our faith as well. Catherine Green McCrate is an Episcopal priest who struggles with the depression that comes from mental illness. In her book, Darkness is My Only Companion, she writes this. This is an exceedingly important lesson, that despair can live with Christian faith. Indeed, having despair while knowing in your heart that God has conquered even that is a great form of faith for it is tried by fire. In the end, Job's faith was tried by fire. He could never go back to the simple view of God as one who uses a divine algorithm to dole out punishments and rewards any more than most of us could go back to believing that swallowing gum will make our insides stick together or that if we go outside with wet hair, we'll get a virus. Job had seen too much to go back. But I do hope he was able to go forward, to believe in a God much vaster than one who hands out rewards and punishments, to contemplate firsthand his new knowledge of an unknowable God.